If you love New Scientist, we think you'll also love a podcast called Gastropod. They visit the world's most advanced model gut at dinner time. They take you on a quest to figure out where the microbes in sourdough come from. And they figure out whether science can speed up the magical process of aging whiskey. The magical process, yeah. In short, they're obsessed with finding the surprising science behind the food we eat every day. Find Gastropod and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor. We want to acknowledge before we begin that as we are putting together the items for this week's show, on June the 10th there was a strike by scientists around the world to raise awareness of systemic racism against black academics. Obviously this is in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis last month. Yes, at least 5,000 academics based at universities from around the world took part in the strike this week. The idea was that academics across science, technology, engineering and mathematics took a day away from research to educate themselves on the racial disparities in their fields and also to take time to identify things they can do to meaningfully change the situation. We're not academics, but at New Scientist we're also reflecting on how we can do better. We'd like to hear from you too about this especially if you're from a black, Asian, minority, ethnic background. You can get in touch on Twitter at NewScientistPod or email us at podcast at NewScientist.com. Now let's introduce this week's guests. Joining us today are New Scientist journalists Donna Liu and Valerie Jameson. Hi, Donna. Hi, Val. Hi. Hi, Penny. Hi, Rowan. Hi. Coming up on the show today, we hear about the biggest land animal of all time. We discuss new excitement in nuclear fusion, said to be the future of clean energy, And we hear worrying news about how the coronavirus pandemic is fueling a range of scams, misinformation and anti-Asian hate speech. We've also got the creation of a fifth state of matter, a macro-sized quantum object. We'll find out what that means later. But first, Rowan, you've got fascinating news of a previously undiscovered effect that may be influencing which men get to have children. Yeah, this is absolutely amazing stuff. We usually think of these kinds of decisions as happening before mating. So a future father might be selected on the basis of his kindness or his intelligence or sense of humour or prowess at some sport or just his raw sexiness or something. You you guys tell me. <laughs> Between me and my husband. <laughs> yeah, all of them. <laughs> well, it, it's likely that partner choice does involve the weighing up of many conscious and subconscious preferences And evolutionary biologists call these decisions make-choice decisions. Yes, I guess from a biological perspective, I'm glad that my species is one where the females can make a conscious choice over who will father their children. Aha, however, it turns out that in people, make-choice can carry on after copulation because the eggs, basically the eggs themselves, can choose between the sperm of different men. No way. (laughs) Yeah, this kind of mate choice is called cryptic mate choice because you don't see it happening. It happens inside the body. Uh, The process is quite well known in many kinds of insects and other animals, but it's never been shown before in humans. Uh, So how on earth have they found this out now? Well, we know that the eggs of many different species, including humans, release chemicals that influence sperm. So scientists took samples from 16 couples undergoing IVF with their permission. It was the excess stuff they didn't need and took the follicular fluid, the fluid surrounding a woman's egg, and looked in a Petri dish at how sperm from different men reacted to the chemicals. They found that the sperm from some men were more attracted to the egg than others. 
This means that mate choice can continue on a biological level even after you've had sex. And the really startling thing is that the decision made by the egg doesn't necessarily agree with the decision made by the woman. So the eggs might choose sperm that was from a man other than the woman's partner. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. But it, well, it's kind of worrying, you know. <laughs> the, the female reproductive tract can be thought of as a really tough assault course for sperm. Uh, it's already really hard for sperm to even reach the egg. So there might be around, say, 100 million sperm in an ejaculate. But out of all of those, only 250 make it up the fallopian tube to the site of fertilization. And then fewer still undergo the reaction that enables them to fertilize their egg. And this new work shows that even then, the egg can attract some sperm more than others. So this isn't like in some animals where, uh, say, a female will mate with lots of males, collect all of that sperm and then make a, a sort of choice about which sample to use. Instead, this is it's more about whether the egg boosts a single partner's chances of successfully fertilizing that egg. Yeah, it's more likely to be that in humans, a single partner's chances. So do we know why um, eggs boost the chances of some sperm more than others? No, uh, we don't know yet. Possibly it reflects the genetic compatibility of the couple. There's some evidence that couples have genetic makeups that make a good mix to benefit the immune system of any child, but we, we don't know yet. And could this uh, finding help people who are undergoing fertility treatment? Yes, hopefully it will. Uh, the people in the study, the, the sperm and the follicular fluid were from people undergoing IVF. And about a third of people who undergo IVF have what's called cryptic fertility problems, which basically means doctors don't know what the cause of infertility is. On the evolutionary side of things, this discovery means that Darwin's sexual selection, the, the ways that males and females work to get sexual partners, this might continue and carry on after people have sex. Yeah, we know it carries on after sex in many other species and even in plants too. But we didn't know that this might happen in people until now. So it's absolutely amazing that the egg does not always agree with the woman's choice of partner. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week. It's our celebration of newsworthy and sometimes unloved organisms. Penny, what are we looking at this week? Uh, so this week, uh, we've got the biggest land animal of all time. The only problem is it's extinct. Is it a dinosaur by any chance? Yes, uh, yes, you've got it. Uh, specifically, we're talking about uh, the large sauropod dinosaurs. Uh, so that's the group of dinosaurs that included Diplodocus and Brachiosaurus. Um, these are those dinosaurs that had uh, really large bodies, long necks and tails, and, and sort of relatively tiny heads. And a feature in New Scientist by writer Colin Barris this week explains that for over a century, people have really wanted to know just how big this kind of dinosaur may have got. And we do seem to be homing in on an answer now. OK, so I know that the very biggest dinosaurs are in a group called the Titanosaurs, named for the titans of Greek mythology. But which was the biggest and how big was it? Because I can't keep up with all the discoveries. Yeah, there's quite a few contenders at the top of the league table. And um, for a while, the crown has been looking like it's going to go to Patagotitan. So this was discovered in 2014. Um, and it's thought that it was as long as a blue whale, 
taller than a giraffe and may have weighed as much as 10 elephants. Wow. Um, yeah, it's incredible, really, to think about. But there's also competition from several other species. Um, these also have brilliant names like Futilognosaurus and Dreadnoughtus. And it's been difficult to work out from the bones that we have of each of these dinosaurs, which one of them was likely to be the biggest. They're all monsters, aren't they? Like, they're about as long as a Boeing 737. So do we know who the winner is? So it's looking like it may still be Patagotitan after all, but it's hard to know just how big it really was. And uh, it's quite fun. There's all these different methods of calculating them and it, it comes out with all these different answers. So one method involves making miniature models of the dinosaurs based on their skeletons. You then drop them in water, see how much water gets chucked out and then scale that up. So by that measure, for example, Patagotitan weighed between 50 and 55 tonnes. But another method, for example, estimates weight from measuring the circumference of a thigh bone. And this technique suggests Patagotitan was even more massive at 69 tonnes. And it's really hard to know which of these is likely to be right. Right. And does it matter? Yeah, so interestingly, a lot of paleontologists say actually no, um, and that it's actually a bit macho to obsess over which dinosaur was the biggest and just how big it was. So that there's an argument that a 30-ton sauropod probably lived and behaved in a similar way to a 60-ton sauropod. And, and how these amazing animals actually lived is more interesting than just working out which one was the biggest. I want a job of um, making miniature models of uh, dinosaurs. That just sounds <laughs> awesome. Sounds like a lot of fun, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with that, that it's more interesting to find out how they lived. But we are always going to be drawn to extremes, aren't we? We want to know what the biggest was, just like we talk about the blue whale being the biggest living animal of all time. Yes, of course. Um, it's hard not to wonder as well, just how big was it possible for a dinosaur to be? I, I think that's an interesting scientific question. But the somewhat wistful fact here is that we may actually just never know. Uh, so there is this idea that the bigger a dinosaur was, the less likely it was to be preserved and fossilised. So there's a good chance that there may have been even larger sauropods, massive ones, uh, that sadly left no trace. Time out, we want to remind you about the bargain offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for access to the full wealth of stuff available to subscribers. And if you like our show, please do vote for New Scientist Weekly in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice category. Go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote to support your favourite science podcast. Next up, we're looking at the long-awaited dream of nuclear fusion, which people have been saying for years could solve all our energy problems and is carbon neutral too. Val, you've visited a nuclear fusion facility and you've been following recent developments. Yes, so this is the dream of getting energy from nuclear fusion, which um, shouldn't be confused with nuclear fission, which is how all our nuclear power stations work by splitting atoms apart. So instead, fusion, as the name suggests, fuses them together and it's the process that powers inside the sun. What goes on there is hydrogen nuclei fuse together to create helium and in the process release vast amounts of energy. And the challenge has been to recreate this reaction here on Earth. But it's fiendishly complex and requires heating hydrogen isotopes to 100 million Kelvin and containing that fireball. Yeah. And the joke is, uh, which everyone working on nuclear fusion is totally sick and tired of, 
the joke is that fusion is always 30 years away. Right? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're getting pretty tired of that joke. Yeah. But there are lots of things going on with it, all kind of all of a sudden. Last week, the Norwegian oil company Equinor, they joined Bill Gates and invested millions of dollars in a company called Commonwealth Fusion Systems. This is a fusion startup uh, spun out of MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, Commonwealth Fusion Systems has now raised more than $200 million of investment. And other billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Peter Thiel and India's richest man, Mukesh Ambani, are also investing in fusion. And in the UK, the Atomic Energy Authority signed a deal last week with nine companies to develop fusion. This includes a plan to develop something called STEP, which stands for Spherical Tokamak for Energy Production, by 2040. They say STEP would be the world's first compact fusion reactor. So what's going on, Val? Why why is money pouring into fusion? Well, we've got a story on this in the magazine this week. Now, it's not so long ago that fusion research was the preserve of governments. It was just um, so expensive and it was also classified in the 1950s as well. The big fusion project uh, that's going on at the moment, it's being currently built, is based in the south of France. And it's an international collaboration called ITER. Over the years, it's had $14 billion uh, of funding. But now there are around 17 commercial companies that have attracted $1.3 billion in investment. And the prize, as you say, is near limitless supply of energy that doesn't release carbon dioxide or create long-lasting radioactive waste. With so many people working on this now, are we getting any closer to it? Can can we retire that joke? Well, I wouldn't retire it just quite yet. Okay. So what's what's looking promising? Well, the most successful way is using magnetic fields in a donut-shaped vessel called a tokamak. And at the kind of temperatures we're talking about, hydrogen atoms are stripped of their electrons and create an electrically charged gas called a plasma. Because it's electrically charged, it can be contained by magnetic fields. Now, to get fusion to happen, that plasma needs to be hot enough and dense enough for long enough. And getting those temperatures and magnetic confinement is the big challenge. And how close have we got? Well, the best performance comes from a tokamak called the Joint European Taurus, or JET, uh, that's based in the UK, actually just down the road from, from where I live. And it achieved nuclear fusion back in 1997, although it took more energy to make it than it actually produced. And so the big challenge is to sustain that fusion reaction and get more energy um, out than you put in. Right. So that's what they call net energy gain. I saw a claim from Commonwealth Fusion Systems that they're going to get this uh, more energy out than is put in by 2025, which really seems hostage to fortune. It's only five years away. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, how have people approached getting fusion to work? Well, fusion power depends on a few things. The efficiency of the tokamak, the magnetic field and the volume. Uh, And back in the 80s and 90s, it was proving difficult to um, really improve the first two of those. It was expensive to improve the efficiency of the tokamak and really difficult to boost the magnetic field. So when physicists were thinking of ways forward, they, they looked at the volume of the tokamak and so proposed bigger and bigger tokamak vessels. 
And the ESO project that I mentioned in France, um, it will be more than 30 metres tall. Right. And it's taken them years and years and they're really over, they're really late with it. So what are the new startups doing? I mean, how are they making smaller ones? It's down to a few things that just weren't around a few years ago when uh, when the ITER design was being proposed. There have been huge advances in supercomputers, machine learning and high temperature superconductors. The superconductors are probably the most important. And what is it about them, superconductors? Well, with superconductors, you can make really, really high magnetic fields. Um, And that's important because if you can double the magnetic field, then you can increase that fusion power by a factor of 16, whereas the fusion power scales linearly with the volume. Um, So increasing this magnetic field is way more effective than simply increasing the size. Some startups now seem to be using superconductors that work at much higher temperatures than the ones used at ITER, so you can make the fusion device much, much smaller and cheaper. And there's nothing in physics that says that fusion machines have to be monstrous in size. And what about machine learning? Yeah, well, machine learning, it's a new kind of artificial intelligence, and you need this kind of power in a computer to perform the massively complex calculations needed to understand the plasma in a fusion device. And it's only recently we've had that computer option. I mean, it helps identify the best ways to control and contain the plasma. And it's viewed as a real game changer. OK, so what do you reckon? Is, is this going to save us? Well, if you'd asked me this six months ago, I'd have said yes. You know, Fossil fuels are too expensive. Global demand for energy is only growing and growing. And we urgently need to deal with the climate crisis. Fusion power is part of the answer. And I'm optimistic that fusion researchers are going to get to that point where they'll generate more energy than they consume quite quickly, certainly um, earlier than that 30 years. But even so, that's still quite a long way from um, hooking up a fusion device to the grid. And the other thing is, well, you know, what's the world going to look like when we emerge from the coronavirus situation? We've seen demand for coal and oil slumps, something that was just unthinkable. I mean, what if we can drastically reduce our energy consumption? What if we get to the stage where we simply don't need fusion? It'd be great if you're right that we can reduce our energy consumption that much, but I don't know. I just can't see our energy demand staying down even after coronavirus. For fusion, I I, don't, I think it's worth investing in, uh, but what we really need, more importantly, is investment in renewables. That, that's what we really need right now. There's been criticism of these billionaires for investing in fusion because for all their rhetoric about wanting to find a source of clean energy, they also want to find something they can monetize. Yeah, and and there is a hurry, isn't there? We simply can't wait for 30 years for this to become the way that we solve our, our big energy problem. That's our sci-fi alert, which sounds when we have a story in the news that has already been portrayed in science fiction. Rowan, what is it this week? This week, uh, it follows on quite well from the fusion story, really. It's a weird type of matter that's been created on board the International Space Station. Okay, so what is it and why did we have to go to space to make it? It's something called a Bose-Einstein condensate. Val, you'll know all about this as our resident physicist. Um, It's a state of matter different to your normal states of solid, gas, liquid or plasma that Val was just telling us about in the fusion reactor. A Bose-Einstein condensate is a state where all the atoms in a gas are chilled down so they no longer behave as individual atoms or particles, but rather as an entity in a single quantum state. They're epic. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's like an Orwellian alert rather than a sci-fi alert, this, because, you know, it's all particles are made identical. It's the dream of authoritarian government. <laughs> so if this thing was predicted in the 1920s by Einstein and another physicist called Satyendra Nath Bose. Yeah, yeah, so it was predicted by theory, and uh, but it took a long time to make. It took until 1995 to make it in real life because it's really hard to make it. It has to be in a very cold place. And even then, when you do it on Earth, the gravity on Earth collapses the entity back into a mass of individual atoms. Right, so that's why they went to space to do it. Yeah. So there's, they've got a little suitcase-sized lab on the ISS called the Cold Atom Laboratory, uh, and it can be operated remotely from Earth. It's chilled down to just one picokelvin, which is minus 270 3.15 degrees Celsius, which is only just a tiny bit higher than the coldest temperature that's physically possible. So is this one of the coldest places in the universe? It is. It's colder. It's quite a bit colder even than deep space, which at least has, you know, the odd photon going through it from stars to warm it up. Um, and having the cold atom laboratory on the ISS means there's only microgravity there. So what they've done, it? they've made the Bose-Einstein condensate? They have. They took atoms of rubidium and potassium in a vacuum chamber and they used laser light to slow down the movement and magnetic fields to contain the cloud of atoms and they made it. They made the Bose-Einstein condensate. And so what's this esoteric bit of quantum weirdness got to do with science fiction then? Yeah, um, there's a sci-fi movie from 2017 called Spectral uh, where people are battling a, a weird kind of ghost monster um, and the scientist who's the hero of the film realises that the monster is actually not a life form but a Bose-Einstein condensate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's evil um, and it swirls around killing people by freezing them from the inside and the humans are at a loss to what to do about it because they, they their weapons don't affect it. So... You know, in real life, we know that if you did have a Bose-Einstein condensate, even a grain of sand would destroy it, um, let alone a bullet going into it or something, because even a light shining on it would destroy it because it would evaporate by absorbing energy from the photons. So if you try and make a condensate at room temperature, you can, but it only lasts for a picosecond or so, a million millionth of a second. Um, and obviously, uh, we can assume that a state of matter will not be inherently evil. Um, but what is really interesting and really weird and cool about this stuff is that it brings the quantum world to a macroscopic size and that allows us to start playing with quantum properties and designing entirely new materials. Next up, we wanted to look at the disturbing rise of online misinformation, scams and vitriol around COVID-19, as if the global pandemic on its own wasn't enough to deal with. Donna, you've been looking into this. Yes, uh, so as governments struggle to contain the transmission of COVID-19, the pandemic has resulted in the rapid propagation of conspiracy theories and a proliferation of scams. Uh, in the UK alone, as of the 29th of May, nearly £4.7 million had been lost in coronavirus-related scams. Uh, the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre has reported um, a, a massive rise in scam websites selling fake testing kits, face masks and even bogus vaccines. Oh, wow. I mean, vaccines, that's really dangerous. What, what are people getting when they think they're getting a vaccine? I looked at this and I found a, a report from the Australian National University's Cybercrime Observatory. And they found that on the dark web, people are apparently selling concoctions made from the blood of people who've recovered from COVID-19. 
potentially very dangerous yeah mm. all these purported cures i guess prey on people's understandable fear so anything that sounds even potentially plausible people are willing to jump on unfortunately uh, most of the current scams follow are following recent trends in the news and so a current concern is around the the nhs's test and trace app and we're seeing people um, calling texting or emailing posing as contact tracers and some of these texts or emails are really difficult for people to discern between real and fake because it might be the difference of say um, a dot instead of a dash in an email address Are we able to tell if all of these new scams and conspiracy theories and misinformation campaigns are completely new or or are they the work of people and organisations who've been peddling other similar stuff for years? It's a bit of both really. There's a bit of opportunism but it does look like um, on the misinformation front that the the people who are spreading conspiracy theories were already peddling other theories in the past. So for example um, there are sites who are now peddling coronavirus uh, theories which were previously uh, pushing out misinformation about uh, September 11 or um, anti-vax conspiracies, for example. And we've also seen conspiracy sites that uh, falsely claimed that 5G signals caused cancer, for example, have since pivoted to linking um, baselessly 5G to the pandemic. It it beggars belief, really, doesn't it? A, A huge amount of harm has been caused as a result. And unfortunately, it's really widespread. Uh, there, there was a Cardiff University survey uh, of UK respondents from um, the end of March to the beginning of April. Uh, in, in that survey, they found that 51% of people had reported seeing coronavirus misinformation at some point in the previous month. And of course, that's only people who are um, well informed enough or, or have the skills to spot misinformation in the first place. So there's, there's probably people who don't even realise what they're seeing is uh, not true. Um, and that's a real threat to public health. But it doesn't stop at public health. There's also been a surge in online anti-Asian hate speech, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah. And this, I guess, correlates to the the surge that we've seen around the world in anti-Asian assaults, uh, physical assaults and verbal assaults. So a study from the uh, Georgia Institute of Technology on COVID-related hate speech on Twitter found that about 3% of coronavirus tweets that they looked at um, were hateful against Asians, and, and that ended up being in the vicinity of 900,000 tweets. And this hate speech, like the virus itself, seems to be contagious, unfortunately. Uh, They found that users who saw anti-Asian hate speech tweeted by someone that they followed were five times more likely themselves to then tweet hateful content. We've seen how uh, K-pop memes on social media, for example, have been really successful in drowning out tweets about white supremacy in recent weeks. Is there something similar we can do for COVID? What, What kind of ways are there to counter hateful content? We can do things ourselves. I must say, I've got to love the, the K-pop stands. Um, in this particular study, they, they found that counter-hateful tweets, so those that are uh, actively critical of racism and hate speech or, or those that supported or defended Asian people, um, these kinds of tweets discouraged others from tweeting hateful messages subsequently. Uh, the researcher I spoke to at the Georgia Institute of Technology said that 
social media platforms also have a role to play, that they can take measures to reduce users' exposure to hateful content through their own recommender systems. Um, and, of course, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's not just about online hate speech. where We've seen um, correlated spikes in the real world, and, and this online vitriol is really linked to how people are treated every day. With all of this going on um, online in the middle of the pandemic, uh, is there anything else we can do? I, I guess caution is is the order of the day, really. Uh, you know, it's it's very difficult when there's so much information out there. Um, so it's very important to exercise even more caution than than we normally would, and to to rely on trusted media sources for this information, because cyber criminals are taking advantage of people's fears. It, it's natural that people are worried, but because they are, they're, they're also vulnerable and and potentially can give away personal information that online scammers can then take advantage of. I, I guess one thing to bear in mind is if something sounds too good to be true, like a, a test that could tell you you're immune or a, a vaccine being offered you on the phone, then if, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah, I think some healthy scepticism is warranted. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Donna Lou and Valerie Jameson. And thanks to you for listening. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and please vote for New Scientists Weekly in the British Podcast Awards at britishpodcastawards.com slash vote. And remember, you can read about all of these stories and much more at newscientist.com and there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20 at checkout. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at newscientistpod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. New episodes go live each Friday. And it's worth subscribing at the usual place you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.